The unexplained potential for life beyond Earth has mystified humankind for centuries. And today on the Harvard Data Science Review podcast, we find out everything there is to actually know about aliens. I'm Liberty Vitter, the feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review, and along with my co-host and editor-in-chief, Shali Meng, we talk to the foremost experts who seek data and evidence to investigate the question, are we alone? Professor Avi Loeb is the Frank B. Baird, Jr. Professor of Science at Harvard University, the head of the Galileo Project, as well as the Black Hole Initiative at Harvard University, and is the best-selling author of Extraterrestrial. We also have Nick Pope, formerly of the UK Ministry of Defense, specializing in UFO investigations. So, have aliens visited us? Should we be sending messages out into the galaxy, publicizing our existence? Is there any evidence that aliens really are out there, and when might they come? Let's find out. I wanted to just start with this. There's this Pew poll that says that half of Americans believe that we have been visited by aliens. You know, maybe the British don't feel that way, Nick, I'm not sure. But you know, from the sort of the academic perspective and from the government perspective, is there hard evidence that aliens have visited us from another planet? Is there a reason to believe this? Well, the two parts of your question uh, are not related. In other words, the truth is not dictated by how many likes it has on Twitter. And uh, let's keep our eyes on the ball and not on the audience. That's my fundamental premise as a scientist. It really doesn't really matter what most people believe in, what they think, because we know that during the days of Galileo Galilei, most people thought that the Earth is at the center of the world. And he was put in house arrest for heresy, claiming otherwise that the Earth moves around the sun. And Today, he would have been canceled on social media. And if you were to ask the philosophers who put him in house arrest, they were very confident that the Earth is at the center. They didn't want to look through his telescopes. And if you ask them to design a space mission to Mars, they will never reach the destination because they thought that Mars moves around the Earth. So my point is reality is whatever it is, irrespective of what people believe in, and our duty as scientists is to collect evidence that will guide us and not be guided by what other people say. But is there evidence? I mean, have we been visited? Nick, you've worked on this for a long time. Well, the way I characterize it is that almost everything is evidence of something. So uh, we must never forget that in this era of cameras and DNA evidence and forensics, Despite all of that, eyewitness testimony still lies at the heart of our criminal justice system, and eyewitness testimony lies at the heart of the UFO phenomenon. And, and so that counts as evidence, as does some of the other things that we have, uh, for example, radar, forward-looking infrared cameras, electro-optical weapon seekers, all of that is evidence. What it isn't is definitive proof of the existence of extraterrestrials or of extraterrestrial visitation. So I think the words and labels we use are important. There's a lot of compelling data out there, but I don't think many people, certainly in the scientific establishment or, or in academia, would say that the case is proven, because it's not. I mean, that's why we're still talking about it as a, 
a mystery, a mystery that, of course, needs to be solved. Uh, Liberty, if, if I may present a different opinion. You see, you can't write a scientific paper based on eyewitness testimony. You cannot use people as detectors. And the reason is because people have hallucinations, wishful thinking. Although it may hold in court, it doesn't hold water in the context of science. And we need to rely on instruments that we have full control over, that can reproduce the data, and that we fully understand. That's the way real science is done, not based on eyewitness testimonies. As much as I trust the military personnel reporting about things and people saying they saw things that are unusual, you know, you can't convince the scientific community this way. Now, what the scientific community argues is extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, quoting Carl Sagan. I completely disagree with that as well. <laughs> and I disagree with that because extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary funding. We don't know what most of the matter in the universe is. We call it dark matter, for lack of a better term. And we invested billions of dollars over about half a century searching for it. We haven't found it. My point is, we should engage in a scientific research program like the Galileo Project that we can talk about, where we try to collect scientific evidence, and by that I mean using instruments, not people, that can be reproduced. Simply looking at the sky, collecting that extraordinary evidence is a scientific project. And rather than rely on what people say, Let's just use the scientific method and be guided by real evidence, scientific evidence, which is not eyewitness testimonies. I agree with that. And that's why I think it was one of the most important points in the ODNI intelligence assessment of the phenomenon, where it made the point that it's where the visual sightings are simultaneously picked up on radar and forward-looking infrared and, and all these other things. The phrase that they used in the report was across multiple platforms, because I agree, there's no such thing as an infallible witness, but where the eyewitness testimony is corroborated by this physical evidence gathered through instruments, then certainly the military, the intelligence community, and the scientific community can do certainly what in the intelligence community would be called MAZINT, which is measurement and signature intelligence. You look at the data that are gathered through the systems on board Navy jets, for example, that have taken those videos that we've all seen. And uh, the government can do some pretty impressive things with those data. So let me jump in here. Obviously, you say it all depends on instrument, which I completely agree. But instruments are built by people and instruments are used by people. And people can decide which part of sky to look at. And there's lots of selections need to be made. So I want to know a little bit about your Galileo project you mentioned, and how does the project itself will have good principle in guidelines in place about data collecting, about analyzing, interpret the data. You know how things can be interpreted in ways that just fits your theory. So how the Galileo project got against uh, that kind of practice, which happened too often sometimes in the data science community itself. Well, I'm asked very often, how will I convince my colleagues of extraterrestrial equipment? And it's really simple. You just get a high-resolution image of it where you can see the bolts and screws, and you might read off the labels saying 
made on exoplanet Y. If you see such an image, a high-resolution image, or you actually bring the equipment to the laboratory where it, uh, you press a button and it does magical things that our technologies cannot do, okay, uh -huh. then you know that it's from outside of this Earth. And my point is that it's not a philosophical question. This is a question which we can answer with good enough data. And that was the basis for the Galileo project that uh, I'm leading that was established about uh, a year ago with uh, generous funding from uh, donors that came to the porch of my home after reading my book, Exoterrestrial. And that book was dedicated to the wake-up call that I had, which is the first object reported from outside the solar system in 2017. At first, astronomers assumed that it's a comet, but it didn't have any of the signatures of a comet. So it's like going to the zoo and arguing that you're seeing an animal that is a zebra, but then it doesn't have any stripes, so it cannot be a zebra. Uh, so then they said, okay, well, maybe it's a rock, bare rock without any evaporation. But this object actually showed an excess push away from the sun. It was most likely flat and had an extreme shape. And I suggested that it may be artificial in origin. And the alternatives that were suggested were all contemplating an object of a type that we've never seen before, like a hydrogen iceberg, a nitrogen iceberg, a dust bunny. My point is, you know, it's just like a cave dweller finding a cell phone and arguing that it's a rock of a type that was never seen before. And of course, the way to resolve the subject is to get better data. And that is what the Galileo project tries to to accomplish, and it has two branches. One, to find the next Oumuamua, another object like it, and come close to it, take a close-up photograph. We are in the process of designing a space mission that could do that. And uh, second is to build telescope systems on the ground that will try to identify the nature of these objects that the government was talking about, that Nick uh, mentioned. Uh, whose nature is unclear, and just get better data on them. The other thing is a discovery that was uh, publicized over the past week that we made with my student in 2019 of a meteor that may have originated from outside the solar system. Now, the big advantage of that is that you're using the entire Earth as a fishing net for interstellar objects that came from outside the solar system. We discovered the first one that was detected in 2014, about four years before Oumuamua, this other object that I mentioned at the beginning. This meteor offers the opportunity to arrange an expedition, go to the ocean floor uh, off the coast of Papua New Guinea, where the meteor landed, and search for the relics left behind from the fact that it burned up in the atmosphere. Of course, if we can bring some of these fragments to laboratories, you know, we can figure out what the composition of the object was. If it was equipment, we might see some piece of equipment that survived through the atmosphere. And I think that would be conclusive evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that it's not a rock. So, you know, it seems like in the past few years, these sightings, you know, what I thought of as UFO or alien sightings or anything was, you know, guys in their underwear in the desert or something. But now we have not only highly legitimate sources like these Navy sightings or documented sightings, which I realize are still eyewitness testimony, but how do we know, what, what is the data that we use to determine that you know, this is actually something of interstellar origin rather than some new tech from China or Russia or something that the U.S. government has invented that they don't want to tell enemies that they've invented. Like, what do we use to determine 
what this stuff is that we're seeing? Well, it's a very difficult call because sometimes when somebody gives, for example, an estimate of speed of a UFO that they've seen, first difficulty is that the estimate may not be accurate. Uh, but let's suppose you've got some data on it, supposing you are actually filming something from an F-18 Super Hornet to go back to those, those US Navy videos then maybe you have some data on the speed. Your problem is always that when you say, oh, this can't be ours, and, and by ours, I mean either US government black project tech or adversarial technology, perhaps from Russia or China. The, the problem is when people say it can't be that because it was traveling at this speed or it did this maneuver or it did this acceleration, 99 times out of 100, the people making those statements don't know what the upper ceiling is of uh, capability when it comes to secret prototype aircraft, missiles, and drones. Mm -hmm. Indeed, even within government, if you were to speak to somebody with top secret security clearance in the US Intelligence Committee, and if you had the same clearance and they shared with you their assessment of just how good say Russia or China are when it comes to drones. So you can try and say, is this a drone or is it something else? That intelligence assessment may be wrong. I mean, in intelligence analysis is like piecing together a jigsaw where you only have parts of the pieces and some of the pieces may be from another puzzle. So it is very confusing. And I'm not sure you ever get to the point uh, where you can say, this cannot be terrestrial and can only be extraterrestrial unless you get something which is definitive. And Avi talked about getting something into a laboratory. It's not my field, but I guess there are things like isotopic ratio analysis and X-ray diffraction that could tell you whether a, a piece of debris or, or, or something originated on Earth or elsewhere. I think there's a commonality, Nick, what you just said, and, and Harvey uh, previously emphasized. It seems like the important point here is about we observe something and compare it to what we know. For some people say, well, that's not possible. But for someone like Harvey, probably, I know you do lots of theoretical calculations. You will rule out uh, these things are just, you know, theoretically impossible. And probably, Nick, you're, you mentioned about essentially depends on who knows all the secret weapons you know so there is for us like a data scientist we're thinking about it's almost like a hypothesis testing you want to see against all the background how unlikely this phenomenon that you have observed but is there a good consensus both for rv and and for nick among the community you are with to say hey here is this things that we all understand and and anything beyond that is you know extraordinary that therefore worth looking into it well, it's not that complicated. We don't need a committee for that. We know, we know how birds look. We know how natural phenomena in the atmosphere look. We know how drones, airplanes, missiles, we pretty much know our technologies. We have espionage on what other nations are doing. So we can tell if a piece of equipment was made by humans or not. This is not a theoretical question. This is not something that we need to establish a committee that will decide about. If we see something operating in a way that deviates, that exceeds 
by a large margin, our technological capabilities. We will know that humans did not make it, okay? And what I mean by that is something moving close to the speed of light and doing extreme maneuvers that we have nothing in our disposals that can do that or something, uh, you know, exhibiting a phenomenon that we cannot understand. Just to give an example, I mentioned dark matter before. Suppose you have equipment where you see nothing coming out of the exhaust and it turns out that they are using dark matter as the rocket fuel. Why is that possible? Because dark matter is the most abundant form of matter in the universe by a factor of five relative to ordinary matter than, that we are made of. So if you see something exotic, some exotic phenomena of a type that we've never seen before on Earth, it will be clear, just like a caveman finding a cell phone. This is not a matter of debate in a committee. It will be clear from the evidence. Now, if we see a bird, we will also know that it's a bird. Okay, zoologists can identify birds and the government can identify drones and airplanes. So this is not something, you know, speculative that astronomers need to debate about and write papers. If it exceeds a certain threshold, we will know it's actually, this would be obvious. So that's what the purpose of collecting the data would be. Now, we don't need to imagine ahead of time what the unusual thing would be. Just like the caveman does not need to reverse engineer an iPhone in order to figure out that it's a cell phone and not a rock. There, there is no need to understand what this thing is as long as you can demonstrate beyond a reasonable doubt that it's not natural and it's not human-made. As long as you demonstrate these two things, everything else would appear to be from outside of this Earth. So, Ari, what you're saying is very interesting. You're basically saying that the astronomy community has a really good uh, consensus already in terms of what should be extraordinary, what should not be, now, which is not the case in some other fields. Right. I mean, uh, the astronomy community is really preferring not to discuss this subject at all, Okay. Uh, if you ask about the astronomy community. But I'm saying, as a physicist, it should be really clear when we identify a piece of extraterrestrial technology with a large gap relative to the technologies we possess. If the gap is small, if they also have equipment just like we have, then you might confuse it for human-made equipment. But the chance for that is really small because the universe existed 13.8 billion years. We just came at the end. Our technology and science was developed only over the past century. Quantum mechanics was discovered just a century ago, and all of the gadgets that we have are based on quantum mechanics. Now imagine another civilization that had science and technology for a million years or a billion years. We would never understand what they are making. And it's much more likely that the gap would be huge. So I just want to be really clear because I, I this is going to sound like I watch too many Independence, you know, Independence Day movies, but... Have we found this? You know, that what you found, what you and your student found is the first interstellar object. Is there evidence right now that there have been other communities outside of Earth that are highly intelligent? So the meteor, uh, we don't know its nature. We don't know. It may be a rock that came from another star, okay? The way to find out is to scoop the ocean floor near Papua New Guinea over a region of the size of 10 kilometers, which can be done with a relatively modest budget, you know, that is 10,000 times less expensive to do this expedition than to go to space and, uh, you know, rendezvous with an Oumuamua-like object. 
and we can figure it out if, whether it now it could be a rock. We don't know that. And with respect to Oumuamua, my book explains the anomalies that it exhibited. There were six of them. It didn't look like a rock. It didn't look like a comet or an asteroid we've seen before. But all that it did for me is provide a wake-up call that we should get more data on future objects like it. So I really want to date the next Oumuamua. It's just like going on a date, liking the person, and then realizing that you like the person and interested in the person after the person left and you can't find it anymore. So what you want is to date the next Oumuamua and collect enough data on it. And as I said, I don't care about what humans' opinion are on this matter. It's not a philosophical question. I just want to get good enough data that will go beyond any reasonable doubt about the nature of an object. And if it happens to be a nitrogen iceberg, like some of my colleagues claim, that should be obvious. If you land on it, you will see nitrogen. Nick, to, to follow up on, you know, I see the, the Arby's point is, is that there is a really good understanding, at least from physics perspective, about what is extraordinary, what's not extraordinary. So the job here is just to collect enough data and however being collected and then make comparisons. Would that be also a good description about how the government agency is thinking about how to do similar things? Oh, there's different considerations there. I think there are differences. I, I mean, speaking to Avi's point, I think there is a distinction between the astronomy community. And I completely take the point that, that you could look out into deep space and you could say, I don't know what extraterrestrial technology would look like, but I, I'd know it was extraterrestrial if I saw it. Mm -hmm. uh, because as Avi said, you know, if, if something is clearly moving at near light speed and then decelerates, changes direction, you get high resolution images, for example, then clearly you can say, well, that's not a drone. The problem is that, of course, looking at this in government, you're tending to look at it in a different way. You're looking at almost exclusively sightings reported within the Earth's atmosphere, data from the public, from pilots, from military personnel. And it's maybe a little bit more difficult to, to make those sorts of judgments. One of the really interesting things that happened with the whole UFO debate over the last four years, as part of its transition out of the fringe and into the mainstream, is the fact that we've now got so many senior people, uh, politicians, government intelligence community personnel, but uh, former director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, let slip a very interesting piece of information in an interview uh, a year or so ago. And he said, he was making a, a statement, he said, it's not just a sighting from a pilot here or something tracked on military satellite over there. So what that immediately told people is there is data, there is military satellite data on this phenomenon. Uh, but of course, the problem with a lot of this is a vast uh, proportion of the really good stuff in government is highly classified and deeply compartmentalized. And of course, that doesn't lend itself to the scientific method, where of course, you, you need repeatability, you need to publish your data. And, and this, is, this is why, of course, there is a difference between the work that Avi is doing in Galileo Project and, and the work that government has done. I think the challenge is to try and find a bridge between the two that doesn't compromise national security, but that allows 
Avi and other scientists to do all the things that science does. I want to pick up on something that Nikki you said, which is obviously, you know, I think it'll be of great interest to the data science community. You talk about all these data, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, from uh, people's observations or some other ways. And in the end, it sounds like you mentioned that how the data were analyzed is more like a qualitative way. You have these experts look at them to decide whether this is a drone or is something else. But from other studies, for example, in the medical community, right, there's all these images, people you know, detect breast cancers. And uh, initially, people would think about, okay, now finding all these uh, radiologists, these experts look at these things to decide whether it's a cancer or not. But, you know, then people learn uh, humans make mistakes. You know, the radiology gets fatigued when there are too many of them. There are lots of things that blur the quality of the picture. So in the end, you also have computerized algorithm to help, right? And then in the end, the best way is to combine both, right? The computer probably give you some kind of a data science algorithm to show the probability, you know, how high this more likely. Then you have expert to, to make a judgment and you collaborate between them. I wonder, is there something similar nature is done there that you have experts look at, but then you also have, you know, truly kind of a machine learning or whatever statistical way of analyzing it and then have a combined approach to increase the reliability of these studies? Not in my time doing it, but it is coming and it needs to come. You have hit the nail on the head and got to the heart of a difficulty that we had in the Ministry of Defense. And bear in mind, I was doing this in the 90s, but we always had this quantitative versus qualitative uh, debate about this. So, for example, we got about two or 300 reports each year. So dating back to the beginning of the program, we had about 12,000 sightings. And we had better information on some than others. But here's the point. We had some people within the Ministry of Defense who said we should be ring fencing the really high quality reports. Uh, pick out the, the ones from pilots. Pick out the ones where you have corroborative data from radar or photographs or videos. And then a, a number of other people intelligence analysts said, no, no, that's not how you should do it. You don't know where some piece of data is going to be important and significant. You can't do proper trend analysis and pattern analysis if you're just focusing in on sightings which you subjectively say are good. The future of this subject, and interestingly, a lot of tech companies are now dipping a toe into this. A lot of people are talking about big data and AI and, and gathering all this. And I think that is the future. But, but this, this debate is one that we have had time and time again. Anyone that's looked at this from within government has had those sorts of debates. Mm -hmm. Okay, if I may comment on that, uh, Sherry. Yeah. The government is not a scientific organization. Mm -hmm. Okay, And uh, the government is responsible for national security. If uh, we're talking about potential uh, extraterrestrial equipment, it adheres to no borders between nations. It's not a national security matter. It's a matter that science needs to deal with. Yeah. Okay. Now, the only reason we are talking about the government is because it has many more resources. It has equipment that is far better than the scientific community has simply because it uses much bigger chunk of taxpayers' money to monitor concerns about 
national security. And as a result, in doing so, they see unusual things, okay? But they do not have the expertise to analyze things that are not a matter of national security. And that's where the scientific community needs to step in. In my view, this is a scientific matter and it should be dealt with by scientists. Now, the government keeps its data confidential, uh, classified, because it was collected by classified sensors. It doesn't want adversaries to be aware of the capabilities of these uh, sensors. And uh, waiting for the government to release the data is like waiting for Godot, this uh, very famous play by Samuel Beckett. (laughs) And instead of doing that, what scientists need to do is collect their own data because the sky is not classified. So my point is, you know, I don't want to look at classified data because that would limit my ability to communicate with fellow scientists in an open way. Uh And even if I see the same things that the government sees, there would always be the suspicion on the side of the government that I'm talking about these things because I know about them from the government data. So I don't want to know about them from classified information. I don't want to hear about classified information Uh and I don't want to wait for classified information to be declassified. Because, for example, with this meteor, it took three years to just allow for the uncertainty about the data points to be declassified. Uncertainty about the data points on one object. So as a result, what we need to do as scientists is monitor the sky and look for objects that are not a matter of national security, objects that are of scientific interest, and figure out if all of them appear to be natural phenomena or human-made, then case closed. We don't need the government to resolve this puzzle. We can solve it as scientists. And the only reason it was not resolved is because of the ridicule and the stigma within the academic community. And that is really inappropriate because, you know, science should deal with any facet of reality using the scientific method without ridicule or stigma. We should figure out what these objects are. And if they happen to be natural or human-made, so be it. And let's move on. I agree with Avi on that. I mean, my father, my late father was a very senior government scientist. And even he said, look, look, the government just doesn't do science very well, doesn't really understand what science is. Even when there are government scientists, they, they tend to get um, kind of marginalized and overlooked and the science tends to get pigeonholed. That's why one of the things, when I talk about bridging the gap between government and science, I I am pleased to note that in the new defense bill, for example, there are multiple UFO, UAP provisions. And one of the very important things, and then a lot of this was drafted by Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, but one of the things that she has in there is that there must be a proper science plan to get to grips with the UAP issue. Now, I don't know whether that will be realizable because as I say, government simply doesn't do science very well, but I, I, I hope so, I hope this will improve. But the point I wanna make here, I, I do not see that as a government versus scientist or, or any sectors, right? Because to take your point, your point is, if I understand your Galileo project ambitions, say, let's collect as much data as possible, right? Let's collect the data, we can analyze them. Now, you also mentioned that because the government uh, has the money that uh, to have those equipment, they have a high resolution, you know, uh, satellites, whatever it is, they, if they have the data, why not use them? 
right? Why? Why? Because you know that is the data that you're looking for. But Avi, I want to ask you a question. This whole idea of analyzing the data, you need to both the quantitative method, the qualitative method. I think that probably is also true for whatever the data you're going to collect. Actually, I wanted you speak about how you actually going to collect the data. You have talked about you know engaged, uh, you know get more funding to collect data with these instrument. But I assume these instruments will have instrument errors. Instrument has its defects and who operates. There's all kinds of uh, measurement errors. First, how you collect data as rigorously as possible. Second, how you analyze the data. Because after all, this is a data science podcast. So I want to bring back to the whole issue of thinking about the data and how the data can support whatever you're doing. Right. So let me start with your first point. Uh, of course, we would love to have access to the government data as long as it is open to all scientists. Okay. If it's classified, then we cannot justify any conclusion that we reach as scientists, and it will not be convincing. So uh, I would love to have access to the government data declassified, and then it will be shared with all scientists, and I can write scientific papers that are peer-reviewed about it. Uh, Unfortunately, for political reasons, that is not feasible. So we have to be realists. Instead of waiting for the data to be declassified, which will never happen probably, especially if you deal with satellite data, uh, we need to collect the data ourselves. And it's sort of like a kid realizing, sitting at the dinner table, that the adults in the room will not really find the answer or reveal the answer. So the kid goes out and figures the answer on their own. And, And that is what the Galileo project is about, uh, driven by our curiosity, trying to collect new data using new telescope systems. And the real innovation is we are not using a camera in a jittery cockpit of a fighter jet, and we are not relying on pilots to tell us what they are seeing. We will use instruments that we buy off the shelf, and we are actually assembling them on the roof of the Harvard College Observatory in the coming month and building the first telescope system that takes a video of the sky in the infrared, in visible light, and the entire sky in audio and in radio. And that would be processed by artificial intelligence software that will try to identify the nature of the objects we see. And once this system works, we will make copies of it and put them in different geographical locations. And the number of copies we make depends on how much funding we have. We really hope to get $100 million so that we will have enough copies, hundreds of copies that will give us enough data that will allow us to get to the bottom of the nature of these unidentified aerial phenomena. And I should say $100 million is not a large sum of money for a science project. It's a medium-sized project. It's 1% of the budget of the Large Hadron Collider or the James Webb Space Telescope. So for 1% to figure out the answer to a question that bothers so many people within society is really a great deal. And what we plan to do is use instruments that we fully understand and use the scientific method. It's really as simple as that. This has been one of the most fascinating conversations, but I want to wrap up with There's this idea, you know, it scares the bejesus out of me that we are sending messages out into the netherworld or the galaxy or the, I don't know what the right word is. And, you know, saying, hey, here we are, come, come see us. 
to whatever may be out there. And it, it terrifies me to think that we're doing that. What do you guys think? Should we be doing that? Is this like, is this a good idea to like advertise that we're here and ready for a visit? Well, it's too late by now. We've been doing it for 126 years. And it was, I should say, it's not, it's not the most, uh, it's not the most stupid thing we have done. For example, uh, NASA sent uh, the New Horizons mission with a small box attached to it where it carried 30 grams of the ashes of Clyde Tambow, the scientist who discovered Pluto. And, you know, what are ashes? They're burned up DNA. They're no different from the ashes of a cigarette. And if an extraterrestrial finds that box, they will say, what is this primitive ritual of humans to destroy the genetic information about a person they want to commemorate? So I actually want to send a mission that will move faster than New Horizons, uh, get in front of it and apologize for this box. I like that idea. Let's start apologizing. Hey, but maybe they're smart. I think it's like a message. It's a sign that we're going to burn them up or something horrible. Right, but maybe they're smart. They're now sending the DNA information, right? That could be used for you know, all kinds of purposes. So that, uh, Nick, you have any take on that point? Well, I agree with Avi. Of course, it, it's too late. We've been a communicable civilization for decades because of television and radio and certain radar systems. So any civilization out there already knows we're here, certainly in our, our local group. I mean, you've only got to imagine that if we are doing things like the James Webb Space Telescope and constructing, I, I think over the next few years, things like the Square Kilometer Array Radio Telescope, in a universe nearly 14 billion years old, civilizations with perhaps hundreds of millions or a billion years head start on us might have things that would make James Webb look like a kid's toy. They could probably see us. But um, I, I don't think, frankly, I don't think we should be worrying about this. I think it would be fascinating to find extraterrestrials. I think it would answer one of the greatest and most profound questions we can ask. And if we're edging ever closer to getting an answer to that sort of question, are we alone or not in the universe? Um, let's let's go for it. Why not? Life life and the human why experience. Why not? Have you not seen Independence Day? That's why I, not. I, I know, but but e, have you not seen E.T. as well and Contact and Arrival? <laughs> and, and, you know, I think we should be reaching out with the hand of friendship and who knows what we'll find out there. It's too late. But look, what drives the human experience is curiosity, the, the drive to find out what's beyond the next hill or over the, the ocean. It's just now we have a bigger ocean. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating conversation and we can go on for a long, long, long time, probably forever. And uh, But unfortunately, time is, is short. So let me conclude by asking a question we always ask about the magical wand and just say, you know, short of little green man landing in the middle of the World Cup, if you could wave your magical wand, what evidence you would want, what data do you want to convince the government, the private sector to invest big to study this phenomenon? Oh, it's very simple. I want to go to the ocean floor near Papua New Guinea and find a piece of equipment that I can press a button on, okay? And I want to see some magic things happening when I press that button. The caveman in the cell phone right. is, in, is at the ocean floor of Papua New Guinea. <laughs> 
Nick. I would like to wave my magic wand and get my hands on an extraterrestrial spacecraft that has a propulsion system that scientists and engineers could understand and replicate because that would take humanity not just to the moon or to Mars, but to the stars. Thank you all so much again. And uh, I wish that uh, sooner or later, the Galileo project will succeed. We will have another episode. And then, you know, we can talk about which button to push at that time. And until then, <laughs> well, I, as long as I can be there to press the button. Well, too. I'm not sure we will allow you because you're a little bit too dangerous, but we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that later. But <laughs> until then, thanks to you all again. And thanks to all the audience to listen to this. And I hope everybody starts thinking about, are we really alone? Mm -hmm.